Welcome back to Breastfeeding Talk, Milk Motherhood Mindset. I'm your host, Jacqueline Kinser, IBCLC, and I'm so excited to bring this episode to you. We're kicking off some incredible interviews here for 2021, and we've got Dr. Sam Zing from Boise, Idaho on the show today, and he is a dentist. And I know I've already had a dentist on the show, and we've already talked about tongue tie and phrenectomy, but he is bringing an awesome, eloquent, fresh perspective to some of the deeper implications of dysfunctional breastfeeding, of ties, of untreated ties. He's filling in some gaps and really just explaining things in a way that is so incredibly easy to understand that he blew me away. So it's actually really funny because I think other than, you know, maybe the first episode of this podcast, I haven't really listened to the episodes on my own. I record them, but this is an episode that I actually think I'm going to listen to. So without further ado, let's go to the interview with me and Sam. Hi, I'm Jacqueline Kinser, and for the past five years, I've been helping families all around the globe to overcome their breastfeeding challenges. And this is the first non-clinical breastfeeding podcast that shows you how to rock breastfeeding and master motherhood through practical tips, mindset shifts, and honest conversation to create a confident and empowering breastfeeding journey. This is the Breastfeeding Talk Podcast. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Sam Zink. I am so excited to have him on this episode. Uh, He is a general dentist and the owner of Zink Dental in Boise, Idaho, and he practices airway dental medicine where he provides integrative treatment to infants and adults to support and enhance their airway. And that's what we're going to be talking about on today's episode. So welcome, Sam. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for being here. Uh, It's actually really great to have you on this episode because we've had another dentist, but there's always more to learn about ties, the airway, oral facial development, and to take this conversation deeper in another direction is going to be so informative for everyone listening. Um, But before we get into all the cool nerdy stuff, I'd love to hear about how you even got into this work because you know, most dentists out there don't do what you do. And it's very unique and very specialized. Yeah. So um, I think I always wanted to be a medical doctor growing up, but I ended up going into the IT field because I didn't want to be in school for too long, (laughs) for 12 years. But um, my wife became a dental hygienist and I was like, I was actually getting my MBA and um, I decided I want to go to dental school. So I actually went back to dental school when I was a little bit older than most dental students. I was 28. And so I really enjoyed it. And I just wanted to you know, have a career where I could um, make a difference and um, have a family and still have, have time with my own family. Um, and so I just kind of went through the standard dental school experience. I went to the University of Louisville in Kentucky and think I got a great education, but there was really nothing discussed other than really cursory gross anatomy discussion about a frenulum or not really talked about a tongue tie. Um, so it wasn't until, well, my first son was born. I had a semester left of dental school and, and looking back now, you know, I have an intake form for infants that come in with symptoms and there's a list of baby symptoms, a list of mother's symptoms. And I just think my first son, he would have had every single baby symptom, like poor latch, falling asleep while attempting a nurse. Um, He didn't have problems with weight gain, which is probably why 
um, through this process, you know, we saw lactation consultants and and pediatricians and and different number of medical professionals that no one mentioned that you might have a tongue tie despite having almost all the baby symptoms. And my wife, she had tons of symptoms, lots of pain. She said she remembers having pain breaking through the the Percocet she was taking because she had a C-section um, and she had that much pain from the, from the breastfeeding and just powered through. She ended up nursing him for two and a half years. And um, she even had, you know, mastitis and then a lump in her breast where she had to get a biopsy. And it was just uh, extra milk and plugged ducts. And, and again, no one ever said, hey, maybe you might want to check out tongue tie as, as the cause of all this. So, I mean, I was really happy to be a first time father, but I also remember thinking like, man, should it be this hard? Should he be waking up every hour and nursing and, and then crying and not sleeping? And so um, it's kind of one of those coulda, woulda, shoulda things that I wonder what it would have been like if he had been treated at an at early age, say, I don't know, you know, five days old. Yeah, that's, it's so interesting that you share that because I think for even just, you know, parents who maybe have like a six month old right now, they're they're kind of doing that hindsight 2020 thing as well. You know, and just saying, gosh, you know, how do we know, right? We could have avoided so many issues. And I, you know, thank you for sharing your wife's experience there because, yeah, things can get really severe when these things go missed. And it doesn't mean that you can't breastfeed for two and a half years. It doesn't mean your baby won't gain weight. Those aren't always the signs that something's really wrong. Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, you know, as I said, I was finishing up dental school and um, went into practice. And my second son was born a couple of years later. And he had less symptoms, but a lot of this, I think he had some of the same problems with tongue tie and lip tie, actually a really prominent lip tie in his case, anatomically, but there were less symptoms. And I think a lot of that was because of compensations. Some of I've had, had a lot of lactation help where they, you know, gave her a special pillow and she positioned really expertly. And, you know, she kind of had gained a lot of skill where I think that, you know, it was good in a way, but I, I, I'm concerned that people don't realize that the compensations have consequences. And I've talked to a pediatric dentist about this, where they think maybe even if a baby with tethered neural tissues is trying to latch, that their jaw could be getting pushed in a direction that could cause adverse growth. That's such an important point um, that I think really gets overlooked. And I, I think about even my training as a lactation consultant, and a lot of it is really just training us to you know, teach our clients those compensations that you're talking about. So, you know, a lot of times people get really hung up on, you know, what brand nursing pillow should I buy or, you know, this nipple shield or whatever. And I'm like, well, truthfully, you shouldn't need any of those things. I mean, if you want those things, you can use them. But if you need them, that's definitely a problem. And, you know, all these sort of latch techniques that people are selling and, you know, selling these video ideas about and, you know, like you shouldn't have to work that hard at it. And I think that's what people need to realize is that, you know, if something is that hard and if you have to do all these extra things to make it work, it, there might be, might be something we need to treat going on there. Yeah. I kind of remember back with my second son, my wife, she must've heard from a friend or read a blog post about tongue tie. So that started into the picture, but then, you know, she asked me, Hey, you're the dentist. Can you look around, do some research. So I asked a pediatric dentist that I knew uh, and um, they said, oh, you know, it's just kind of a fad or it's not a real thing. Like as long as they can stick their tongue out, it's not a big deal. So I took that information back to my wife and kind of squelched her, you know, research process. Oh man, <laughs> that's, yeah, that wasn't the right answer, was it? <laughs> no. that's, but, it, it, you know what? I've had a lot of 
clients actually who are married to dentist husbands and they have told me that, you know, they've researched it and they asked their husband and they're like, I, you know, I don't know, this wasn't in my training. So it's, it's great that you're actually bringing that up. Well, yeah, I, I, I'm wasn't, um, I don't know, maybe there's an idea that the doctor wants to have the answers and they want to give something definitive. And I, I probably wasn't humble enough then to say, yeah, well, I mean, I said, I don't really know. Let me ask somebody else. But I guess I, I wish, wish I could have gone deeper rather than just taking someone's answer at face value, you know. But um, with my third son, so my boys now, they're five, eight, and 11. Um, we, had, we had moved to Oregon. And um, when he was born, actually, you know, since my wife's a hygienist and I'm a dentist, we're pretty savvy with oral cavity. And we noticed in his case, the day he was born, that oh, it looks like his, he's got a little lip tie and he's got a frenulum under the tongue. And and maybe those are going to cause an issue. So um, the first day he was born, we called the lactation consultant who was in the hospital over and, and said, hey, what do you think? It looks like he has a lip tie and a tongue tie. And she said, oh, I'm not allowed to say anything. But you might want to check out Dr. Gehari's blog. So Dr. Gehari is an ENT in Portland, Oregon, and he has a wealth of information on this blog. And so I started reading the whole thing and really interested in all the, all the blog posts there and thinking, yeah, for sure. Let's get my son checked out. And so again, in his case, there really weren't a lot of symptoms. And again, I think it's because my wife had now on the third child had good uh, compensation skills. But um, we actually saw the pediatrician when he was one week old. And I think it's fairly typical for pediatricians. She didn't really look, she didn't really have a way to, to do an assessment. She just said, oh, well, sure. She was accommodating. She said, well, if you, you know, you guys are the professionals. If you want his tongue tie checked out, I'll refer you to an ENT. So uh, she referred us to an ENT there in town where we lived. And we went to the CNT, who wasn't necessarily like, a, you know, savvy with tongue ties um, in for breastfeeding. And he looked at my son and said, well, you know, there's definitely a, a lip tie there, but we really don't like to do those because there's too much bleeding if we, we release it with the scissors and it's, it's not worth the mess. And then you know, it's, he's got a mild tongue tie, but, um, you know, if it was my son, it, it's mild enough. I wouldn't do it. I wouldn't put him through the trouble. And so we just thought, you know, he's the expert. Um, and, and really at that point, at, at two weeks old, we didn't really have a lot of symptoms to make us concerned. But um, it snuck up on us really fast. When he was three weeks old, my mother-in-law actually saw a picture of him and said, hey, he looks kind of shriveled up and, and like, is he gaining weight? And so my wife went to the hospital, did like a drop-in lactation clinic. And they weighed him and they said, you know, did you know he's only eight ounces of our birth weight? She's like, no, I didn't know. So they said, hey, you need to just try triple feed him, um, start pumping, start giving him formula. And she came home crying and, and said, you know, what are we going to do? And I, I said, well, we, we should have just gone to see Dr. Gehari in the first place. And um, so that just kind of goes to show that, like, not every doctor, dentist or ENT is necessarily going to be breastfeeding and tongue tie savvy. Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you mentioned that as well, because I, I think many parents go through a very similar journey that you're describing, which is, you know, maybe they saw something online like Dr. Harry's site and they thought, hmm, maybe that's an issue. And then, you know, may have an open-minded pediatrician. Some, some are not. They'll say, well, you know, that's not a real thing. Or, you know, I think that's more rare these days, but uh, hopefully, at least it is in my area. But and then even if they do refer, it's usually to an ENT, like you said, who, again, might see the ties, recognize them, diagnose them, but says, well, it's not worth treating because they don't 
understand the the consequences of of the treatment and not treating. So it's I'm glad you brought that up. And unfortunately, most families are still in a place that they really do have to seek out, you know, the care provider to treat on their own. Um, they're not often getting referred to the right people. So, you know, I, I just saw an article that came out and, and you may have seen it as well. Um, I believe it was with the uh, American Academy of Pediatrics and um, they had a, an ENT actually write this and essentially say how there's two camps uh, of, of basically professionals out there. One that says, we should release every frenulum and the other says that you know this is kind of a fad and we shouldn't do anything and i don't think that that's true um i don't think that there's only those two extremes and that's where we can put most you know healthcare providers in those categories um but it was recommended in that article to basically never treat what we call a posterior tongue tie and only ever treat an anterior one and it just goes to show that there's there's still just a lot of opinion-based um, practice going on in healthcare and less of, you know, the evidence-based practice going on. So it's important yeah. that we talk about that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, we were at a kind of a moment of truth or, or a crisis almost where we actually called up to Dr. Gahari's office and, um, he was out of town for several weeks on vacation or something. So I was at a point, I go, maybe I should just bring home scissors from the dental office and do it myself. <laughs> <laughs> Because we were kind of feeling desperate, you know, we now we feel like we had really identified the problem and knew the solution and uh, and and didn't really have the help. But fortunately, you know, I decided not to do that. And uh, the next day, um, their office called and said, hey, we have a pediatric dentist up in uh, Portland area that has shattered Dr. Gehari, has the same laser, you know, we're comfortable referring patients in his absence. So they got us in the next day. And then I asked to go back and see the procedure. And, you know, it seemed like really it's a it's a fairly straightforward, safe, minimally invasive tape procedure, very quick. And I was like, heck, I, I can do this. You know, I've seen it done. I, I need to get some more training. But if this, you know, this helps babies that much, you know, this is something I definitely want to learn. And, and then over the next um, days and weeks, I mean, it was tough to do the stretches and there was some pain involved and, you know, for my wife and, and for the baby. But um, I have these pictures now. We have a picture when he was one month old. And he's just looking shriveled and gaunt and breaking out with eczema on his face. And then one month later, you know, two months old, he's plump and happy and just looks like an amazing thriving baby. And, and we never did do the pumping and the formula feeding. It was just functional breastfeeding got him really back on track. Oh, that's so, yeah, that's so awesome. I, I think, you know, that unfortunately is the advice that's handed out at at some of these, you know, hospital support groups, you know, or weight clinics, right? And and I get it too because they're they're very busy and and really they're not you're not like a, a patient just because you show up there necessarily. You know, you don't have to birth at that hospital to go and and they're just trying to triage quickly and and get the biggest result fastest. The baby's losing weight. Let's feed the baby more, right? So I I do understand, but you know, we don't ever want that's a temporary solution that needs to be followed up, right? You can't tell a mom to triple feed and supplement and all these things forever. You know, that's how breastfeeding ends up, you know, ending really. So I'm glad that it worked out for you. And I'm also so glad that you got a chance to see the procedure and see the value in it and, yeah. and see the result in your own family and know that this was something that you wanted to do to make an impact. Well, I feel like that is a huge factor in you talked about, there's this maybe divide between there's two camps. And I feel like the people that are in the, 
kind of pro phrenectomy camp are people that a lot of times have had a child that had the issue and they saw the benefit. I mean, that's, that's, I've seen that consistently and I hope it's, it's unfortunate that it would have to take that, but you know, sometimes it is like you're, you're sort of um, ambivalent, unaware, unless you really are faced with, with your own struggle. And so I guess that's the, the benefit of going through something like that is to be able to help other people once you've been through it. Absolutely. And I, I think that Dr. Gahari actually has a similar story yeah. about how he got started in treating this too, because most ENTs, you know, really it's not their thing. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, you mentioned, you know, all three of your sons, you know, had these issues. Um, you got the third son treated. What ended up happening with your two older ones? Yeah, and no, I'm, I'm, glad, I'm glad you asked. So I'll try to place this timeline correctly, but when my third son was born, I had just started I was in 2015. I was five years out of dental school. I knew I wanted to do some advanced dental training in occlusion and TMJ. So I ended up taking, um, started the continuum through bioaesthetic dentistry, or they call it OBI. So right around the time he was born, I was had been taking courses in splint therapy and diagnosis and TMJ and sort of this optimal model. One thing that's cool about bioaesthetic dentistry is we have these kind of like um, it's like a living fossil records. People, we've taken models of their teeth and they have like these ideal arch forms and unworn tooth morphology. So it gives us really an optimal health model to shoot for, to compare someone that has problems against this. So I bring this up too, because I think it's important, it, whether it's tongue ties or airway or TMJ, to not just treat disease and symptoms, but to actually have a vision or a picture of what optimal health looks like. Because a lot of times people just say, oh, you're fine. But just because you're fine not having severe symptoms that like most specialists see doesn't mean you're anywhere close to optimal health. Yeah, and I, I think what I'm hearing you say is that most people think of dentistry as a place to go to get your cavities treated or you know maybe a root canal kind of thing or to have their teeth straightened or whitened. But there's so much more to it than that. And most people really aren't getting anything beyond that when they go to the dentist. Yeah. Yeah, and so that that happened around the time that my third son was born and had this such success with the pernectomy. It really planted the seed of in all my um, practice and just observing people saying, "What is what does optimal health look like, and what are those characteristics?" So yeah, then fast forward a couple of years, I think it was around um, yeah twenty twenty seventeen. My my middle son was having terrible sleep issues. He was in our bed every night and I would take him back to his bed and he would come back to our bed and snuggle in between us. And I'd end up just letting him sleep there. And he was um, four years old at this point. And he would have night terrors and um, he would just have dark circles and bags under his eyes. I mean, he was just really struggling to get quality sleep. So because we thought, oh, well, our first two don't have, uh, they, they have tongue tie and wasn't treated. We took them both to Dr. Gahari and had them evaluated. He said, yeah, they're four and six at this point. He said, they definitely have tongue tie, but it's a really bad age to try to treat this. <laughs> um, just because it's hard to do um, myofunctional therapy at this age, it, you have to most likely do sedation or go to the operating room. He said, so specifically with my middle son, you want to um, get a lateral ceph x-ray, which you know I could do in my dental office, um, and look at his adenoids. And then you need to check out this dentist here in town that does orthotropics. And so I didn't really know much about that at the time, but we did go ahead right away, get the lateral CEP x-ray, which showed that his adenoids, which are sort of like tonsils up behind the nose, so it blocks the nasal passage. Uh, he had about 70% blockage of the nasal airway. So they had us fill out a pediatric sleep questionnaire, and he scored like an 80 or 90% out of 100, so he had a lot of 
these sleep symptoms. And then we ended up consulting with a pediatric ENT. And, um, you know, they asked us if we want to do a sleep study. And we said, no, if he's, you know, if we can go, go ahead and get this done, why would he need a sleep study? He's already scored high in the pediatric sleep questionnaire. And so we had an adenoidectomy done. He had sort of smaller to normal tonsils. So they decided not to take out the tonsils. In hindsight, I might have pushed for that more to clear that whole airway. But um, he had an adenoidectomy. It went pretty well. But um, he did better for about, I would say, six weeks. We thought there was a big improvement in his sleep. And then he reverted. He regressed back to the same old tossing and turning and being in our bed. And then I captured this video of him um, a few months later where he's sleeping with his head just hyperextended, like his chin is so high in the air. And what that is is it's a child trying to survive by opening their airway through head posture. And you can see his mouth is open. And what I started realizing is that, you know, in some kids, I think tonsil and adenectomy does help open the airway and they start to grow and develop more normally. But I think in my son's case, he already had this adverse jaw development and a malocclusion that was the limiting factor. Mm. Yeah, I, I think that gets overlooked and i've i've seen studies about adenoidectomy saying that it's very likely to get a relapse of symptoms as soon as four weeks after it's done and so you put your child's you know you know under anesthesia to get this done it's not so fun and you know like you said things were better for a little bit and then they're they're not and it might be like you're saying too it's not that we don't ever do that it may be part of the treatment plan you've yeah. got to address these other things so you know, you mentioned really the, the jaw development and, and things like that. I'd love for you to chat more about that. So, you know, we can recognize it sometimes more easily when we have an older child or an adult who's able to speak and articulate and, and all of that. Sometimes it gets missed in babies. And, you know, we're not, we're not thankfully, we don't need to, uh, you know, do adenoidectomies on babies or whatnot. But you know, these are the things that we look at later on down the road if if we don't address things early on. So yeah, I'd, I'd love to learn more about, you know, basically if I was going to sum it up in a question, just because you had, you had said this so well is, you know, you asked the question, what does optimal health look like? And this kind of started the journey for you. So how does dentistry or how can dentistry help people or what you do as a dentist, help people create optimal health? Oh, yeah, that's a great question. I I look at pictures of my son from the time before he was even had an adenoidectomy. And, and you know how when you learn something and you learn to see signs and you can't unsee it, right? So now I'm like, how could I have missed all the signs that are here in this? We had family photos. So I'm looking at his face in this picture and he's got a gummy smile. So if you see a lot of gum in a child's smile, more than likely their maxilla has rotated clockwise and it's down in their face and there's mouth breathing. So that's part of what causes that vertical growth. And, then I and, see the, that. and the maxilla is the upper jaw for those yeah. who don't know. <laughs> so, so, um, and then, you know, there's the teeth in the upper jaw, there's no space and adult teeth are at least 50% larger than baby teeth. And so if you don't have wide gaps between baby teeth, you're going to have crowding in the adult dentition. And um, he had dark circles under the eyes. And, you know, I just see these are big red flags besides his symptoms that just by looking at a photograph, you can almost go. I'm pretty sure this child has an airway issue and they most likely have a sleep issue and, you know, could really benefit from basically moving their jaws and teeth into a place that supports and enhances that airway. So that's why I told you that Dr. Gay Harry had mentioned reaching out to the dentist that did orthotropics. And I just didn't do that. We were taking it one step at a time, but then 
I did contact him and I was really trying to decide, you know, should I just have this other dentist treat my son or, or should I, you know, should I learn this? So I did decide to take the orthotropics mini residency in 2017 and 2018. And I still had that dentist in Portland help me, but we started treating my son when he was five um, with orthotropics, which is like a pediatric jaw development technique. So we actually used an expander in his upper jaw to create big spaces between the teeth and expand his palate. And, and part of what got me really interested in um, orthotropics was there's a lot of discussion about the problems that adults have and that Dr. Heng, uh, he's the, the instructor there in um, Los Angeles, he actually reopens extraction spaces for people that have had their premolars extracted. And I go, I've had my premolars extracted. <laughs> and, oh, like if someone wants to reopen those spaces, there might be, you know, maybe it might have been wrong to take them out in the first place. And part of why I was thinking that was, you know, my son's having sleep issues from basically a small oral cavity that, and, and just as a little aside, or it's a pretty big thing though, but you can see CT scans um, and pictures online where the size of the upper jaw directly sort of dictates the size of the airway. So the airway is sort of soft tissue hanging off of the upper jaw. And think of it like a tent, like your, your bones, like the tent frame, and then the, the soft tissue is like the tent fabric. So, you know, if you make the mouth bigger, you have a larger airway and the larger airway is much less likely to collapse under uh, the inspiratory pressure of breathing in. So, so here I'm kind of looking at my son at five and looking at myself at um, about almost 40 thinking like, wow, by the time, you know, I don't feel like I had problems earlier in life from having extraction and orthodontics, but, but now that I'm getting closer to 40, I'm feeling like I've gained some weight. I'm sleepy. I'm fatigued. I wake myself up kind of choking on my tongue. Like there's not enough room for my tongue and my mouth and started connecting those dots. That you've said so many things so eloquently. I don't even know where to, where to begin. Just I, if I was listening to this episode right now, I'd probably rewind the last few minutes and just replay it because it was so good. But I love the way you explained the correlation between the upper, uh, you know, the, the upper part of the mouth, the palate, the upper jaw, and you know, everything that follows from that. Um, and I know I've, worked with our airway dentist here and he said how much easier it is to expand the upper jaw anyhow like the lower jaw kind of follows whatever you do up top now you might have to do things with that directly but that makes sense to me and i think there's a lot of parents out there who are recognizing you know these high palates in their babies and or they'll say the baby has a very small mouth or the jaws recessed, right? And these are some of the things that they really struggle. It's like a catch-22, you know? They, they struggle to get the good deep latch that they know they should be getting their baby to have because of these things. But then on the other flip side of that is getting the good deep latch is what ultimately grows that jaw in the airway. So we have to, you know, we have to do what we can to enable that. And I'd love for you, just because you... I think you said like 50% of your practice is doing the infant phrenectomy. What are, what are the things you're seeing in, in babies in terms of airway issues? You know, and what are, what are parents seeing? What are you seeing and, and how do we fix those? Yeah, no, I'm glad you circle back to that um, because I've, I've seen some information about if you have an ultrasound of a baby and you get a nice sagittal view, which is like the side view, you can actually do a measurement called the inferior facial angle. And it's like taking a line through the, cranial basin in the nose and then back towards the chin. And basically as that angle gets smaller, uh, there's a threshold at which you can say this baby in utero has retronathia, meaning their jaws are too far back in the face. And usually the lower jaw 
is too far back. So we're, we have an epidemic of collapsed facial form and collapsed airways, and we can actually see this now in utero. So you can have babies born where, you know, some people say it's normal for babies to have a retreated chin, but I wouldn't say that's normal. Again, it's not optimal. But um, one thing we have seen is where a baby with a retreated chin, they do seem to already as a newborn struggle with their airway. We'll see sleep postures where they're sticking their neck, you know, they're craning their neck back. They're really extending their chin way up to open the airway. And, and that's not good to start life that way. And the breathing might be more raspy or, or labored. Um, but we have seen is that um, some of these babies, we release the tongue and they're able to do functional breastfeeding. And that's growing and developing their mid-face. And we're seeing faces and jaws come forward, even in infants with this. Mm, yeah. Yeah. I've, I've definitely seen that as well. And, and interesting, you mentioned that on the ultrasound because I had a good friend who posted, you know, one of these 40 ultrasound pictures on her Facebook page. And I saw that chin so far back already. And I was like, do I tell her or, <laughs> and then after the baby was born, you know, you don't want to, it's sensitive time, right? You don't want to, how do you, how do you bring that up sometimes? Right. But it's like, like you said, once you see something, you can't unsee it. And I think she posted a video like towards the end of the pregnancy of her tummy moving because the baby had so many hiccups. And I was like, oh man, lots of hiccups are not a good sign either. <laughs> it's not that they, it's not bad if they do it ever, but when it's all the time, I usually go, that's, that's probably a baby with a tongue tie just because yeah. they're, they're, tr you're struggling to swallow properly that amniotic fluid. And then, and then uh, the baby came out and, you know, was gaining weight. Great. She had a ton of milk, but, you know, the reflux was there and the snoring was there. And I think she posted a cute video of the baby snoring. And I was like, okay, now I got to message her. <laughs> yeah. I just, she doesn't know. And I know she thinks her baby is perfect and her baby is perfect, but we can just make things so much better, yeah. you know, and, and actually she, we, she did end up going to get treatment, which is really cool, but yeah, it's, it's, there's amazing things that we've seen. And I, I don't know if you've seen this, but you mentioned, you know, this idea that the baby's born with a recessed jaw is, is normal, or, or that's kind of what we're taught. I actually have, uh, you know, I forget the exact title of the textbook, but it's like one that every lactation consultant has like human lactation and something uh, and breastfeeding or something like that. And it actually says babies are born with a recessed chin to help facilitate breastfeeding. And mm -hmm. I'm like, that doesn't help facilitate breastfeeding at all. And I think it's maybe Dr. Kevin Boyd who's done some research on this, yeah. but looking at fossil records and there used to be infants born with the upper and lower jaw, not recessed. And Lord, yeah. they clearly were doing okay. So, you know, what can we do? Like you said, it is an epidemic, you know, it isn't. Um, no, I think that's where that proper, that perspective comes from. I'm glad you brought that up that um, Kevin White's published a number of articles about evolutionary medicine and dentistry. It's basically the idea that you need to look at the fossil record. And they, I think there's even some articles, I think, when even went to the Atlantic magazine about uh, Kevin Boyd at the Penn Museum. And they've got this collection of pre-industrial skulls and they have infant skulls. And yeah, their jaws are way forward in the face. You know, they can measure that angle. Um, they call it the SNA. So it's like from the cranial base to the nose to the chin or through the upper jaw. And it's like 90 degrees, which means it's really far forward. But even now in the orthodontic literature, they use these norms that are based on like people from the 1940s. So they say maybe like 82 degrees is normal. So you're already starting from a norm that maybe is compromised by um, a problem with, well, basically, you know, what the anthropology literature, literature shows is that there was a collapse of facial form and a reduction in the size of the jaws and increase in crowding the teeth that happened right around the Industrial Revolution when the food supply became soft. 
I think we went from chewing four or five hours a day of hard chewing to only chewing uh, 5% of our pre-industrial norms. So basically, if your, if your muscles don't work hard enough, then your bone is not going to grow to its full genetic potential. So that's at the root of, you know, basically um, infants um, having smaller jaws. Breastfeeding can help, but also there can be sort of a drop-off when they go to solid foods. It's kind of hard to, to chew four or five hours a day hard chewing, or most people wouldn't want to because we have access to soft food. But that's a big part of the problem is this um, soft diet that basically makes it so people don't have room for teeth and they have impacted teeth and, and, and not, not enough room for wisdom teeth. And so that, going back to that evolutionary medicine dentistry idea, it's really a blind spot in the dental and medical education. And I think Dr. Boyd in his article says um, it would be like an engineer not studying physics It'd be the same as a dentist or a doctor not studying evolutionary medicine and dentistry. So... Mm. I like, I like what you pointed out there that we're basing things on, you know, this really, it's funny that it's outdated, but it's more recent than what we should be studying, right? Yeah. So there's been this movement towards, you know, paleo diet. And now, you know, we're recording this on January 7th. So, you know, most people I know are starting like the whole 30 diet, you know, and, and there's all these things going on. I'm like, yeah, but you can't just First of all, that's not a paleo diet because they didn't eat mashed sweet potatoes yeah. and, you know, yeah. like that just wasn't how they ate. And, and paleo was, it's not just a diet. It's, it's truly a lifestyle. And that doesn't mean, you know, I know there's people that go to extremes, like they, they sit on the floor and they sleep on the floor and they, yeah. things. but I mean, it's not that we want to go back to making life really hard, right? Like obviously with our lifestyle these days, it's impractical for us to spend five hours a day chewing. We've got to be, you know, in terms of just societal expectations, more productive than that. We can't spend that much time eating. We have other things to take care of. We have work, we have children, we have, you know, we have to sleep, like all the things, right? But there is, there's definitely way too much convenience, like with pouches for kids yeah. or, you know, smoothies and protein shakes and, and all that kind of stuff. So, you know, where, where's the balance? Cause I feel like sometimes people get this information they go, okay, great. And they either become kind of purist about things and a little bit obsessive, or they almost go like very defeatist and say, well, I'm never going to have that 90 degree angle with my jaw. You know, why should I do anything at all? So how do we, how do we help, you know, parents, especially, um, you know, just like, what, what are the main things that we want them to focus on? Because I think for most people, it's unrealistic to expect perfection, right? Yeah. To get, we're not going to, I'm not saying you can't have it, but I think most people probably aren't going to invest fully in a treatment plan to bring their job back to like how we used to have them, you know, hundreds of years ago. Yeah, I think just awareness of optimal is really important for, for doctors, for providers, and for the patient to know here's what optimal looks like. And then we don't expect to have the job of a caveman, but we can move towards it. So if you have some sort of objective measurement, and there's some really cool ones, like within the orthotropics literature, yeah, we have this idea that about 40 to 42 millimeters of the intermolar width of the upper six-year molars, we can measure that objectively. You can measure on a skull or in someone's mouth. And you're like, we kind of think we need at least 40 millimeters or more to house this human tongue. So if you're talking about, say, a child or an adult getting palatal expansion, jaw expansion, if you have a target to shoot for, then you can actually move towards optimal where... Traditionally, maybe with palatal expansion, they would say, well, we can, we're only going to move it two millimeters. Well, that's just sort of like a guess and not really looking at where do you want to go. And so a lot of cases, you actually need to expand the upper jaw and the lower jaw to match. 
because if you expanded the upper jaw too much, it would not match the lower jaw and it would compromise the occlusion or how the teeth meet. But um, in any of these cases, you know, whether it's breathing or airway or tongue tie or, or palatal size, we want to just, we can move towards optimal. And we might not say we're going to get there, but um, we can make significant improvements in vital function and health and quality of life and longevity by moving towards that optimal. Oh, I love it. I, I think you answered that question so well because I think some people don't always have a, a great answer, you know, as, as to why why we should even go for that. And that was really good. And myself having done myofunctional therapy and measuring that intermolar width, it's so important because I would work with families who would, you know, we'd, we'd recognize the ties in their baby and they'd get them treated and great. And they would say, oh, well, my six-year-old, you know, has been in speech therapy for two years and, you know, definitely has a tie too. And, you know, I'm going to go get that released at the same time, or I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go get it done. And I'm like, well, hang on, we got to take some measurements because if you don't have room for the tongue, then there's no point really in releasing the tongue mm -hmm. first because it's got, it can't go to the right position. Yeah. And so people are putting the cart before the horse and, and thinking, oh, tongue tie release will fix everything. Yeah. or lip tie release and that's really not the case and and thankfully i would say you know I, I, <laughs> at least there's not really any practical way to do it anyway but we're not needing to expand babies before they get their yeah. tongue ties released so there's that but when we look at anyone beyond infancy that's a huge huge consideration to to make yeah so kevin boyd has shared some nice articles that were actually written by a dentist in like the early 1900s. Uh, his name's Bogue. And he has this Bogue index, which they look at um, the intermolar width and, and say by age four, we know from those studies that um, they should have 28 millimeters between the primary molars. And you should grow like a millimeter or two a year till you get to that 40 millimeters I mentioned. So we have this sort of growth curve of the palate from at least age four. So by three or four, you can really start to notice if that palate seems small and if it would need expanded. Now, like the younger the child is, maybe they would benefit from phrenectomy and by the soft tissue growth influencing the jaw growth to be better. But I would say probably by the time they are four or five, it's, it's probably going to be somewhat limited in how much just the tongue tie release alone would help influence the um, jaw growth itself. But like with adults, you know, that's a big part when I see adults that come to me because often they know I do tongue tie, but, but they're an adult. And that's a big part of why I do a, a comprehensive examination where we get a CT scan and an intraoral scan, and I'm able to use digital tools to measure their intermolar width and their airway size, because there's actually, and tongue posture, those are all factors that uh, speak to their prognosis. What I have found though, and also talking about getting towards optimal, is I kind of break it down into, for adults, um, is 30 millimeters intermolar width is small, 35 is medium, and 40 is large. And really I don't see any larges, because um, if they have a tongue tie, they probably don't have, um, if people that have, uh, functional tongue, that they're the ones that develop those 40 millimeter intermolar width. So I often see people kind of between 30 and 35. So I think the people that have a 30 millimeter intermolar width, and they're, so I call them small, as they don't have as good of a prognosis with a tongue tie release because they don't have room for that tongue. Now, depending on the patient, you know, I have quite a few speech therapists as patients and they're really gung ho. And so I tell them, you might get some what I call downstream benefits, which is the myofascial release and the tension in the neck and the back and all the way down the body. And, and some of those can be nice, but we say you might have to do the phrenectomy again if you do get expanded, so it might be two. But I have seen a lot of patients where they're at that 35, so they're medium, and they're not this optimal caveman 40 or 50 millimeters, but yet they do have really nice benefit from a phrenectomy or functional phrenealplasty. It's really a more 
an involved procedure for an adult uh, for it to get a full release. But but they do quite well at 34, 35, 36 millimeter intermolar width. So it really is a case by case basis. It's a sort of precision medicine and dentistry, and um, you really every every situation is unique. So um, that's that's why, um, like I said, uh, babies. It's I think they have more of that growth potential, but but the adults, you want to take all those factors, basically the three dimensional jaw shape and size into consideration. Mm, yeah. And I mean, gosh, how long does it take to take that measurement? Not long at all. It would be so great if, if at minimum every pediatric dentist was screening, you know, if we start there, then by the time they get to an adult dentist, it's, it's taken care of. Right. So like you were saying by age four, it's supposed to be a certain measurement. You know, yeah. Like, wow, that would, it takes two seconds, right. To just, well, hopefully if the kid's sitting still, <laughs> right to measure and and we could at least screen so maybe they're not the dentist to treat it but at least there there could be screening and so now i know all the parents listening are going to go and get a measuring tape and they're going to measure their own mouth and their kids and and all of that which you know great go go and do it but i i want to we keep kind of dancing around it a little bit about breathing specifically and you know you've talked about babies or even like your older son, right? Sleeping with the head tilted back and and maybe the mouth open, or I've seen babies where the tongue protrudes between the lips, even they just kind of have this posture where they look like a bulldog a little bit and bulldogs, we know have severely compromised airways. So we know it's impacting breathing negatively, but, but why is breathing so important? Like what, how should we be breathing? I guess is my question. I guess it's, there's two sides to that coin. One is that there's, there's a lot of this is involved with posture. So you know, someone's going to breathe, they're going to survive and they're going to compensate with their body that may cause adverse growth or pain or tension or all those things because, you know, the breathing is going to be the most important thing in terms of, you know, they, they say like, there's nothing more important than your next breath. You know, you don't, you don't breathe, you're, you're dead. Um, but, you know, the posture for compensating for breathing will cause the malocclusion or cause adverse growth or maybe a convex face or a forward head posture so we really see that this soft tissue dysfunction is driving crooked teeth um, and even you can look at like tongue posture and correlate tongue posture to malocclusion and say like if the tongue is fully resting in the palate suctioned against the roof of the mouth there's a proper swallow then you're going to have that nice 40 millimeter intermolar width but if the tongue rests lower in the mouth and there's an airspace above the tongue you're going to see progressive crowding and there's some interesting variations too like my son was actually one of these where if there's less room for the tongue, the tongue will sort of squish or splint between the back teeth and then the front teeth will erupt. They'll come together. And so they end up with this deep bite. And it's where you look at someone and maybe their upper teeth cover the lower teeth completely. But what you learn about that is that's not their normal, that's not how they rest. Even if their lips are together, they're probably sitting there with the, again, the tongue behind the back teeth, because there's not enough room. And then the front teeth are kind of apart. But then, um, Every time they try to bite down or swallow, they're pushing their TMJ back backward. And so I, often I'll see people, if they have a deep bite, or if they have teeth that sort of point backwards in their face, I can almost guarantee they're going to be uh, have TMJ issues at some point. So mm-hmm. really that posture influences the function, which influences the structure. But then as far as breathing itself, um, there really is an optimal way to breathe. And most people find that weird. But... Um, we can actually quantify, and I have an instrument in my office where I measure every new patient and we check their entitled CO2, so how much carbon dioxide they're breathing out. This device has a nasal cannula. It's called a capnograph, and it measures the CO2 they're exhaling, as well as their respiration rate. So I often find patients 
where they should be breathing maybe six to 10 breaths a minute for very calm parasympathetic um, activity. And they're breathing like 20 breaths a minute and they don't look like they're hyperventilating. They're just sitting there normal, but they're breathing very quickly. And then CO2 is really interesting. Um, it's really, it's produced in the cells as they do work. And it's what unlocks the oxygen from the red blood cell to go into the tissue cell. So if people are hyperventilating and they're breathing too fast and too deep. They're, they're blowing off, they're losing too much carbon dioxide. And therefore they actually have blood flow constrict and the oxygen is not able to get into the cells. And so that's why the blood flow constricts. So we actually can see brain scans where this brain is getting less blood because the person's hyperventilating and they have low CO2 and the blood flow is shutting down or slowing down to prevent cell death. Because if your cells did work, um, but couldn't get the oxygen, they would, they would die individually and you could have all kinds of problems. So I can help people go from this learned unconscious dysfunctional breathing behavior because it really is a behavior. It's more like posture or gait, like something you kind of learn from your parents from observation. People have these poor breathing behaviors, but then they also develop a certain set point of CO2 where if they try to breathe slower, they try to breathe less, they really can't because they're sort of tolerant to this low level of CO2. But we have a tool where we can train them over a one month period to breathe less, less quickly and lighter so they retain more of the CO2. They, they get to this optimal level of 40 millimeters mercury CO2. And that allows their blood flow to uh, increase to their, to their brain and to all their, their uh, tissues in the body. And that's allowing the oxygen to maximally enter the cell. And so I would say there's nothing really more important than your next breath that properly distributes in oxygen to the cells. Mm. Oh my gosh. Okay. Everybody go back and re-listen to that. That was beautiful. Like, wow. Uh, yeah. And it just, and, and some of the things that I'll just share to piggyback on that, like how does this translate in the real world is obviously a number of health problems, right? I mean, there, there's so much research coming out even regarding mental health, specifically, you know, behavioral disorders and, and even ADHD, you know, which we recognize in kids, but also adults, that those are all rooted in sleep issues. And as a colleague that you and I both know, Roger Price has taught, it's not, um, you know, it's not sleep disordered breathing, it's breathing disordered sleep. So our sleep becomes disrupted because our breathing is disrupted and, and it's fully unconscious. I mean, most time it is anyway, but you could sit here and start focusing on your breath. You're not going to do that in your sleep. You might do it in yoga class. But there's a reason why yoga has so many benefits, right? Because you have that breath consciousness or, but I've seen when I've done the myofunctional therapy work with people and helps them with that breathing behavior repatterning that you're just describing. I had a 36 year old male who, I mean, he fathered children. Like I worked with their baby too. And he had erectile dysfunction. And he said, once he did the myofunctional therapy and he was totally gung-ho about it and he got his phrenectomy that problem resolved because like what you're saying about the blood flow restriction you know it impacts so many things um and then i've i've had many mothers who have gone on to get their tongue ties released and have other babies and where they may have experienced vasospasms with breastfeeding the first time those went away you know with subsequent children because now that blood flow that oxygenation of the cells, it's, it's so, you know, vastly improved. So those are just a couple of things I've seen in, in my practice, but obviously there's so many implications. And I think for parents out there who I see babies that are breathing very quickly at times and parents notice that, you know, but the pediatrician, 
I don't even think there's anything that they're ever concerned about unless the baby's blue, really. And it's not because they don't care. It's just because they're not really aware. So I, you know, we do see that. And I think there's a lot of parents who, you know, take sleep classes, work with sleep consultants and things, and this baby just will not sleep and they are exhausted and they're at their wits end. And so when we make the connection, you know, maybe you can do a really good job of describing what's the connection between breathing and sleep, because sleep is where our body restores itself. So if we're missing that, we're not getting good quality of that. You know, it's just, it's just this whole vicious cycle. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I have a, I have a methodology I use in my practice where it's sort of like, um, you know, a pyramid where one, one level supports and enhances the next level. And that's why breathing is at the bottom. It's the foundation. I also, I feel that's just simply because like someone could have airway issues and TMJ and sleep apnea. And let's say they get double jaw surgery, which is where surgically the jaws are brought forward 10 millimeters in the face and makes a dramatic change in the airway in the face. And they can usually breathe better and sleep better. But let's say that person has this radical surgery and yet their breathing behavior is still dysfunctional. Their, their, their benefits are going to be severely limited by that breathing dysfunction. So why not start someone with optimal breathing? And that's the cool thing about um, using biofeedback with an objective measurement of CO2 is there's a lot of techniques out there. Actually, real quick, I mean, there was a great book came out called Breath by James Nestor. Did you read that? And it, it, it talks about the ancient wisdom, all these techniques in the yoga and the meditation and the prayer. And um, it's really interesting. But I think one thing that wasn't talked about other than as diagnostic is you can use a capnograph and CO2 biofeedback to actually customize a breathing retraining program to an individual. And then you can transform that learned unconscious dysfunctional breathing behavior into learned unconscious optimal breathing behavior. And it's sort of like learning to ride a bike. You spend a month with this device and it's a rental. Um, and then after you're done, um, you can then you can do just some like some simple breathing techniques where you try to breathe like six breaths a minute or use an app. But you've learned that tidal volume and you've gone through that process to where you've overcome the discomfort of the carbon dioxide hypersensitivity. And so you're able to tolerate the optimal level. And one interesting thing about that treatment is it's actually FDA cleared for panic and PTSD. So um, that goes to this reduction in blood flow. It really causes a reduction in um, function of the brain. So when you restore the breathing, you restore the blood flow, you restore the oxygenation, you're basically supporting and enhancing the function of every cell. And that translates into improvement or elimination of panic attacks and PTSD. Mm, mm, yeah, so, so much to unpack there. And I, just because of my work, I think about, you know, even women who are birthing. And we know that if you learn certain breathing t- techniques where you do hypnobabies, which is going to help, you know, slow the rate of respiration, things like that, that you're going to have a much easier birth. Um, you know, when you have that, that tension created that creates anxiety, your body doesn't want to put a baby out into the world because it's in a panic state. So that's not a safe environment, right? And so then the, the labor slows or it's more painful or it's almost like you're working against your body. And then I think about how many women experience postpartum anxiety, which you know can be very often rooted in things like trauma and what have you and just lack of support and, and you know other diet, other things. But if you have dysfunctional breathing behaviors on top of that, you know, you can, you can take the medication, you can do all the things, but doesn't, it doesn't change that at the end of the day. And then I think about breastfeeding posture and how many moms sit there hunched over sort of collapsing their diaphragms and what have you. And, you know, not really, um, you know, there's just, there's just so much, right. 
that we could really tie all of this into. And yeah, I, I love that there's a tool to measure it. And you mentioned it's a rental. So that's really a great option for people who are looking for, you know, for something to help with the issues they're experiencing. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and just to circle it back to babies who are breastfeeding, I would, I'm curious if you would agree with this, you know, uh, like you said, at, at this pyramid, breathing's at the bottom of that hierarchy, that's the base. And when I am trying to explain to parents the consequences of the ties that I'm seeing in their baby, I often bring it back to that base of breathing, that if the baby can't breathe well, they certainly can't breastfeed well, because right. maybe it's that you know, their nasal passages are compromised because of the high palate and position of the jaw. So now they're mouth breathing, which they shouldn't be doing. And then if the breast is in their mouth, well, they can't stay latched. And so it's like all these things, right? So what are, what are some of the things that you see, you know, we see these impacts in adults and older children, but what are the things that you're seeing it's causing problems with in breastfeeding babies specifically? Yeah. I mean, with, that's the reason, that's a big reason other than my own family experiencing these issues with um, tongue tie uh, from infancy and then kind of getting to see the consequences of untreated tongue tie in my older sons. Um, I feel like it's really the first and best airway intervention. And it's hopefully a thing that we can do. We do it early enough and with proper support and wound care and, and, and this optimal breastfeeding. Um, I'm hopeful that they would avoid these other dysfunctions, the breathing dysfunction or the jaw development issues. So it doesn't mean that they won't need intervention. I mean, my son who's five now who had the phrenectomy, he is by far the best breather, sleeper, his lips are together. Um, so I see the huge benefit of that compared to my older sons, but also he's still, I think he's gonna need some expansion. His teeth are kind of, his little more gummy smile and the teeth are narrower together. So it doesn't mean that the tongue tie release and the breastfeeding got him completely to optimal. But again, I think it got him well towards optimal, but then you can also still have an objective measurement of what's optimal, like the intermolar width and, and sort of get him even better off so that he can avoid consequences of the future. But I don't know about, you know, breathing retraining. There's a lot of techniques you can introduce to a child and also posture training. There's a, a program called GOPEX. Um, so between my functional therapy, GOPEX, something like we take our breathing, which they have some cool videos for kids. Um, I really, uh, parents could really educate themselves and get the right interventions and be minimally invasive and help their whole family get more towards optimal health. But the, yeah, definitely the younger you start, the farther you are along on the journey. So you're requiring less intervention and less kind of pain and suffering later. Mm, such a good point. You know, one of the things I do that, that a lot of IBCLCOs are trained in is, you know, this oral habilitation for the infants and, you know, um, I know you work with one of my colleagues and, and, you know, we all try to partner to do this team holistic approach. And it's very easy for me to retrain a baby to solely nasal breathe. It takes a few days. Now you were talking about this device and, you know, a month and, you know, for an adult, right? So, and, and then it's, it's just your brain is is very habit based. Everything's habit based. So the way your baby latches, the way they breathe, all the things. Um, but it is it is a quicker process when it's a baby. So the sooner we can do these things, I feel like not only are you just saving a ton of time and frustration, but certainly money down the road. And and like you said, it's not a it's not like just because you release your your baby's ties now means that you'll never need orthodontics or any of this stuff. But you know you're certainly giving you and your child a really good head start and a really healthy start 
you know, as optimal as we can get it, you know, as yeah. early on as we can get it. Yeah, that's true. Yeah. Oh gosh. Well, this has been so incredibly informative and I think that you've answered a big question that I get a lot of the time, which is, you know, what happens if, if I don't treat these ties and you know, I really appreciate you sharing the story of, of your sons with us because your personal experience tied with your, you know, actual medical and dental training is so important to take both of those and you can really describe it so well. Um, and I've shared my story with my children too. So for the listeners who want to go back and listen to those episodes, you certainly can, but it's been such a treat having you here. And I'd love to hear, you know, if there's one thing that you could leave our listeners with, um, just to sum, sum up what you've had to say, or if there was anything else you wanted to add, I'd love to hear it. Yeah, I think um, just getting awareness about what's optimal and, and observing. And I think breathing is a good place to start. And specifically mouth breathing, that's something that's pretty obvious to see. You know, if someone's breathing, we say, you know, orthotropics, like uh, there's this optimal um, posture that helps the growth to go in the, in the right direction. And that's, you know, breathing through the nose, tongue and fully in the roof of the mouth, lips slightly together and teeth lightly together also for between four and eight hours during the day and, and all night long. So if you have that happening, then, then theoretically, you know, someone's going to develop properly. So if someone kind of knows what's optimal, then they can compare that to what they're seeing in their children and themselves. And then just be aware to find the right um, help and providers that can help them on that journey towards optimal health. Mm, that's so great. And if someone is out there thinking about, you know, maybe not their baby, but an, an older child, um, you know, with some of these issues or themselves, is there a great resource for them to find you or someone like you to work with? Um, not everyone is going to be local to you. So yeah. I'm just wondering if you had anything to point them to. Yeah. I mean, the, um, there's a, I think it's the foundation for airway health. They have a pretty cool resource about a lot of this stuff and like a provider locator. Um, also, um, orthotropics, North America is a good resource. And, um, yeah, those are, those are a couple ones. Awesome. Yeah. I've definitely sent people to the foundation of airway health website to go use their directory to seek someone out. So, Thank you so much, Sam, for everything you've shared with us. It's been absolutely mind-blowing in some ways, and I really appreciate you being here today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you. You're welcome. Did you know most moms stop breastfeeding in the first month postpartum? I believe succeeding at breastfeeding means having the right mindset. In fact, studies show that the number one factor that determines breastfeeding success is commitment, which is why I've created my incredible audio download of breastfeeding affirmations, where I give you actionable mantras so you can breastfeed your baby with confidence and peace of mind. And best of all, it's free. To get access to this audio and PDF, simply visit holisticlactation.com slash mantras and you can get started right now.